Welcome to the Voice of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sobolski. Stay tuned for a quick message from our sponsor. In 2016, Dr. Sinksy stated that it took her 32 clicks to document a flu shot in her EMR. That's insane. Technology is supposed to help physicians, and finally one is here that does just that. It's Suki. Meet the AI-powered, voice-enabled digital assistant for doctors. Doctors that use Suki spend 76% less time on documentation. Health systems get happier doctors, reduce costs. Patients get a better experience with doctors that actually take the time to spend with them. And doctors get more patient time, more personal time, and way less time as a glorified data entry clerk. Go to get.suki.ai to learn more. That's get.suki.ai to learn more. I'm your host, Matt Sobolski, joined today by two special guests. But before we get there, I want to introduce my co-host, Reed McClellan. Reed, say hello. Tell us what you do. Hi, Matt. It's great to be with you today. My name's Reed McClellan. I'm the founder and CEO of Cortina Health, a healthcare technology company with a focus on restoring the care in healthcare. Excellent. And I founded a company called Ionia Healthcare Consulting. We focus on voice first and AI across the healthcare continuum. And I'm joined today by two very special guests from over the pond, across the pond. Gentlemen, say hello to the audience, introduce yourselves and tell us what you're doing. Cheers. Um, so I'm Abdullah Albiati. I'm a family physician, or we refer to it as a general practitioner here in the UK. Uh, and I'm a continuing in my clinical practice. At the same time, I founded a health tech company called Medical Chain, which has been going strong for the past three years now. Uh, and I know Professor Tony Young by being part of his clinical entrepreneur program in the NHS. And I'm uh, Tony Young. I'm a practicing urologist in Essex, just to the east of London in the United Kingdom. Um, I'm also the associate medical director for one of the largest hospital groups in the United Kingdom. Um, I'm the chair and director of medical innovation at uh, my university, Anglia Ruskin University, but also the national clinical lead for innovation for the whole of the health service in England. So a frontline clinician who's been put in a leadership role for a whole nation's healthcare innovation. Well, we are certainly pleased and honored to have both of you join us for our conversation. Abdullah, I'd like to start with you. Uh, we conversed and had a conversation, and I wanted you to somewhat share a bit about where your mind and your efforts are currently with Medical Chain and how you ended up as a GP offering this sort of entrepreneurial action for your fellow citizens and your contemporaries. Yeah, so it's a um, it's a long journey, really, but it's something I think, as all of us, all four of us on this call are clinicians. We've been in many positions in the past where we've been treating patients and we don't have the full access to their medical records, and this is because the information is siloed in different areas. It could be with the primary care physician in the community, it could be in the secondary care uh, setting in the hospital, and when you have limited access to information, you have limited choices of how to progress with your patient, and it's something which came across in my 
career. So I started off trying to train as a surgeon and ENT, uh, and then I switched to an accident and emergency, an emergency room physician, and finally settling on general practice. And I saw even throughout this journey how each department didn't really share all of the information it had with each other. So thankfully, we're in a situation today where the technology is to such an extent where you can actually have access to your medical records, you can carry it and display it on your mobile device, as an example. And we're trying our best to disrupt the way that healthcare is practiced, not just in the UK, but worldwide, where the patient actually acts as the conduit, bringing their information with them to appointments, so that the clinician they're seeing in whichever setting, locally, nationally, or internationally, can get the full picture of who they're practicing and who they're consulting with. Fascinating and interesting and very applicable currently. Healthcare conversations we've had with lots of our co-hosts, our guests, and the healthcare community talk a great deal about the value of data. There are some experts that even claim that the value of data in healthcare is uh, more pricey uh, than cocaine and truffles by the ounce. And I think many of you would say to yourselves that we're driven ourselves into a place of digital health where data sort of reigns. So let me ask a follow-up question to this. Why is the patient having access to own or at least give permission for their data to be lent so important? I think it's important for multiple reasons. Um, we always talk about the idea of removing healthcare barriers. So, for example, you might be practice, you might be a patient attending a certain area of your city or of the nation, but you've got limited access to who you can consult with because those are the only individuals and the only clinics which can interact with you. So, if you have access to your medical records, it removes that health barrier where you can take your information online or face-to-face -face with whoever you want to interact with. I think that also opens up patient choice. So you're not limited by the few providers that you have interacted with and helps you to seek out second opinions. So I think it's something which is naturally coming and this idea of having access to your data has been driven by controversies such as Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and whatnot, where people have become a lot more inquisitive about what information is being held about them and realizing that it's very valuable and they would do well to have access to it, to share it with who they want to share it with and to get the most out of it. You know, guys, um, when as, as a physician myself, when I think of the NHS, I was under the assumption that they had a uh, entire healthcare record system that was just shared across the board so that what you just described, Adela, wouldn't actually be the case. They could, uh, they could pull up any records depending on if you're in Yorkshire, if you're in Cambridge, or if you're up in Edinburgh. Is that not the case? And if not, how exactly do you guys keep your health records uh, through the NHS? Well, um, uh, perhaps I'll take that one. <laughs> and you would think being the world's longest established universal healthcare system 72 plus years now we would have sorted that problem out i would think i would think so <laughs> but in fairness i'm not sure that i have i've traveled to most developed nations across the world now and many that are developing and i haven't found anyone that's got absolutely everything nailed in this super um, important space because it's one um, uh, sort of acronym NHS everyone thinks it must be one joined up organization but actually there are many thousands of different organizations that are set up under the NHS umbrella we're getting better and better each year at sharing records and, and joining them up so for example now after a piece of work that was started more than 15 years ago now 
um, we have access nationally to um, radiology images so you can get those across the country not necessarily straight at the click of a button from London to Edinburgh but the routes are there for it to be done and they can be uh, constructed but once they're set up you can do that um, and you can get scans from anywhere across Electronic medical records, well, that's an, another thing altogether. And when I, I recall I was over with um, uh, my friend John Matteson, um, who uh, was until recently, I think he's now emeritus now, one of the medical directors at Kaiser. And he, um, he was telling me, and he bought in, uh, um, I think it was Epic they got there, I want to say, um, and he did that. But still, you know, it was a Herculean task for him to bring in. And I think clinicians still struggle with electronic medical records in secondary care. And of course, in the UK, we've got primary care as well, a family physician, we call them general practitioner-led system. They have different electronic care record systems. So it's not so much, I would say, that the system doesn't want to join them up. But when you've got lots of different commercial providers with different electronic records, whether they will all be interoperable and work together is another matter. And so I think it's, it's kind of grown up in a really complex way. And I think if we were to go back and design healthcare now and electronic records, I can't think of a clinician that I know that would say, I'd have exactly the electronic records <laughs> that we've got now. In fact, most people I know would say, can you please get rid of it? I'll do anything. Right. And, and so there's something that hasn't worked. And I'm not saying they're bad things. They've been very necessary things and have helped improve patient care and standards and recording of things that have gone on. But it's not right. We all know it's not right and it needs to evolve. We, we haven't got all the answers. Um, we're doing better and better. We are supporting a number of initiatives that put the records in patients' hands directly so they have control of it. In fact, I'm a big fan of the Australian system. I don't know if you've um, seen that, but they've rolled out a nationally now the system where the patient holds their whole record and they go in and see the doctor and they give you a code and the doctor is allowed is the, has the privilege of viewing the medical record while the patient gives them permission. And when that time expires, then the doctor no longer has access to it. So the patients control everything there. And if the doctor wants access to it for longer, they have to ask. So, and there are some really good examples on that. Everyone would have thought that wouldn't have worked. But I think the take-up has been well over 90% in Australia now of patients taking that forward. And as for, you know, data sharing and concerns, of course, clinical data is really um, uh, something that has to be guarded and, and kept safe and secure. I get that. But actually, if COVID has shown us a lot of things. And one of the things that's shown us in the National Health Service is the benefit of patients sharing their data. So when the rest of the world, um, you know, was kind of siloed and couldn't share data, um, the National Health Service led the world in research. So when you look at many of the drugs that were proposed that might be of benefit in COVID, we were able to test them and trial them, whether you were down in Truro in Cornwall or up in Tyneside in the northeast of our country, um, we shared and pulled that data across our research network. So, for example, we showed that dexamethasone actually had a really significant impact on mortality in advanced COVID through patients voluntarily sharing their data. We did that really rapidly across the nation. And suddenly, 
And I would say dexamethasone is probably the most cost-effective um, drug advance there's been in COVID that's been shown. And that will have saved countless lives across the world as we've learned about this terrible disease. So have we got it all right? Are we all joined up? Can you is it a, no? Are we working hard to try and achieve that and make that happen? Yes. Will all the answers come from the public sector? Absolutely not. That's why um, Abdullah, with his great little startup looking at addressing medical records, is exactly one of the things we want to support because, you know, a startup is really an experimental method, isn't it, for seeing if you've got something that works, I think. And, and before the NHS kind of embraced those, that, that whole sector, I think in the United States, you've been much better at doing that for many years now. In fact, uh, clinicians who were entrepreneurs were kind of heroes in the United States. You know, and Reid, you were telling me earlier, um, you are one of those clinical entrepreneurs yourself. And I, I don't think I'm a hero by any means, but... but <laughs> well, but in... In the United Kingdom, until about five years ago, we just didn't support um, clinicians who wanted wow. to do that. Whereas in the States, I recall about seven or eight years ago, one of the honours of my life, I had, um, I sat in the Fogarty Winery in the hills outside Mountain View with Tom Fogarty, you know, one of the great American inventors of all time in medicine. Well, I've got a photo and I've got a smile going from ear to ear. I felt like I, I'm just, I was meeting one of my medical and childhood heroes, really, an amazing man. But, the, um, but you've celebrated that in the United States, and, and we traditionally haven't. So we've turned that around. We now run an entrepreneur program. We have over 500 frontline clinicians on that program doing a whole range of things. And Abdullah is one of those with his really interesting take on how we can democratize access to medical records. So let's talk about the pivot from here. Um, so you talked about celebrating entrepreneurial sort of initiatives of the NHS and across your worlds. Um, let's talk a little bit about what the barriers are and what the experience has been to build what you've built, Abdullah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult journey because sometimes you can feel by yourself and you need to find friends that are going to come with you on this journey and, and look for people in influential positions such as Professor Tony Young. Um, essentially, there is an appetite now to try different kind of technologies, more so now than, it, than it, I would say it was five years ago. I think medicine lends itself to being a very risk-averse specialty by nature. And unless something is very much evidence-based, people don't want to touch it, nor do they want to change how they do things. And I think the kind of big jolt in the arm we've had from COVID-19 has removed those barriers to a certain extent. And now people are much more flexible at trying different techniques or trying different solutions. So in the UK, for example, we have uh, one of the departments within NHS called the NHS X, and their role is to help drive innovation forwards in the NHS. And they put out a piece quite early on in the COVID-19 pandemic where they essentially removed the information governance barriers towards video consultation. And they said, look, even if you need to use FaceTime, WhatsApp, Hangouts, whatever you need to do with your patients, just go ahead and do it because now's not the time to uh, quibble about these sorts of things. So, you know, it's a real 
roller coaster because sometimes you feel like you're fighting against the waves. Sometimes you feel that there are some well-established uh, big players in this area and you're just a small fish in a big pond. But sometimes you'll find that there's these small opportunities which you need to find your niche within them, take advantage of the rules which might be lax in your favor. And really one of the benefits of being a startup is that we're quite agile. So when we see an opportunity, we're able to build and, and push in a certain direction quite quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So um, going back to your company a little bit, can you explain to us how the patient actually has control of their records? And as we just mentioned, Tony said, there's actually multiple different types of electronic health record uh, programs out there. How does, you, does your company work with each one of those? And if so, how exactly does that work? So another part of the NHS, as we've already alluded to, is a very big national organization. One of the uh, big parts is called NHS Digital. And NHS Digital has been working very hard at trying to get access or the APIs to the primary care records. These nationally are held by two very big organizations. One's referred to as EMIS and one is referred to as TPP. And if you're able to essentially jump through many hoops over a long period of time, you finally get access to this API, which will pump the information towards you in the EMIS and TPP systems, which covers about 80 to 90% of the national uh, primary care records or, or community held records, which even worldwide, for example, EMIS has access to 30, 40 million patient records, which is the biggest primary care uh, data pool worldwide. So this is something which thankfully we've, we've successfully achieved and patients would go to their primary care physician, their, their family practitioner, and speak to the receptionist and say, look, I'd, I'd like access to my medical records. Please, could you give me something called linkage keys, which lets them connect to their own medical records. And we're trying a digital way in the, in the UK now called the uh, NHS app, where essentially you can use an NHS login and gain access to your information without having to physically go into the practice. There are about 10 or, or so different providers which have access to this API of, what, of which we are one of them. The next challenge really in the journey is how do you go after the APIs of different hospital organizations so that you can start building this network within your product? And how do you really start going after the big international organizations such as the Epics, the Cerners? And I think what we're banking on is it's a war of attrition. Can we be in this game long enough that there's going to be legislation which is coming out one after the other, such as in Europe with the GDPR, where it's in black and white, you have rights to have access to your medical records. And to a certain extent, these um, electronic health record systems need to facilitate that and need to make that uh, communication and empowerment of the patient a lot more flexible than it's been in the past. So that's what we're banking on. We've been successful with the first hurdle, which is the primary care records. I think that's got us to a bit of a standard with the other people that are involved in this space, but we need to push on nationally as well as internationally to really become what we refer to as a health passport. And similar to what um, Tony described as happening in Australia, we want that really on an international scale, because I think the way medicine is being practiced, health tourism, you know, I, I might be a, a, an English patient, but I want an American knee specialist second opinion in the States. I should be able to share my information with that specialist and they should be able to see exactly what the UK counterpart can see. So might you take this a little bit further, both of you, this is for both gentlemen. Um, in the hands of the patient, we have data. Uh, we move maybe away from the EMR as a workflow engine towards a data exchange engine. 
What do you hope to see with innovation throughout the continuum of care for patients as a function of this change of who owns data and how it's shared? Have you thought much about that? Well, so I think this is a really live area. And if you had to ask for the direction I see things traveling in, I mean, one of the beautiful things about the National Health Service, because we're the biggest unified purchaser of healthcare on the planet, lots of people come and see us each year to show us some of their things, talk about their thinking and the way things are moving. And could I see that the well, the kind of duopoly it's been in the United States in electronic healthcare records and, and, and similar things in the United Kingdom and other countries with things. Could we see that changing where you have this kind of cloud storage system, which is like a big API, and anyone who's got something really excellent, a really great offering, can come along, it can be available in the cloud, and almost patients on their own devices or systems have the ability to access that bit they need that that makes it interoperate and and, and binds it together so could reed's company that he was uh, telling me about earlier with its artificial intelligence system you know to develop something to that level requires such an amount of effort and time and detail and thinking that even a large company could do that for the whole of healthcare and get that right when actually having a dedicated team of, I don't know, 10, 20, 50, 100 people just for really focusing down on one small pathological area is such a Herculean effort that I, I really wonder if what we're going to see is that these, these kind of large systems that control uh, much of the market will actually be disrupted by really high quality offerings from across the spectrum. Some will be from larger corporates, some will be from startups and others in the space. Some hopefully will come with patient-led demand saying we want access to this and their carers actually demanding for access to these things. And so could I see a future of a cloud-based interoperable um, data exchange mechanism where not only is it your electronic record, but it learns live from patients so you can say, Patients like me with conditions like this responded in the following way to could it could it actually allow the era of things like predictalytics to come along? Why not? Why does it just you're quite right? And um, what you were saying, Matt, does it have to just be a, a kind of a dumb electronic healthcare record? Can it be a live learning thing? I think it could be. I don't know what you think, Abdullah. Yeah, I, I, I think you, you, you really talk about the future. You know, I think the way we've done things served a purpose to a certain extent because with the level of technology that we had available to us and the kind of demand that people had, it served a purpose. But when we talk about electronic health record systems, they do much more than just hold medical records. They do billing, they do accounting, they do audit trails. All of this stuff is completely irrelevant for the patient. They're not interested in that at all. They just want a very dumbed down version of what did the clinician say about me? What are the uploaded documents? What are my investigation results? And that's all they really need. And I think if you have this kind of, you know, I mentioned before, this kind of passport, this health passport, where you're taking this information with you, it really can unlock so many uh, different industries. You've got huge efforts going into research now, for example, COVID-19. Why is there not a template where the patient can plug their information into that and you'll have live information of what the clinician did for the patient and next to that will be patient recorded outcomes saying they gave me dexamethasone i felt like this 
they did the test for me. This is what the outcome was. And I think that's really valuable, not just from a kind of research or a pharmaceutical perspective, but this idea that you are really engaging patients and making them the center of their care. You know, in the, in the kind of way we've been trained as medics, you know, there's four of us here at the moment, we were taught to be walking encyclopedias. You know, we knew every syndrome, every medication, every side effect. And that's not how I practice today. You know, I, I practice with Google by my side. The patient will come in. The first thing they'll do is apologize and say, I'm really sorry I Googled my symptoms and I came out with X, Y, Z. So you shouldn't apologize. You did the right thing. I'm glad you're invested in your own healthcare and I'm glad you looked it up because now you've set the narrative for the conversation. I know what your concern is. You saw some blood, you Googled, came out cancer. I can now put your mind at ease and let you know why it's not that. And I think our, our roles now as clinicians are changing as well, that we are not there to have this kind of paternal influence of this is what's wrong with you this is what you need to go do it's it needs to be a partnership you know this is your information you have exactly the same access to what i have access to and my job is to show you your options and to guide you towards what those options are and i think you know the way that tony describes it that's the you know that's the place we're trying to get to and, and i'm confident we will we will get there i think a lot of things especially in technology have come in leaps and bounds in a short space of time it might be frustrating for us because the days go by the weeks go by the months go by but certainly when you compare where we are today as a healthcare compared to five years ago or 10 years ago we're doing amazing things and as i say it's just about staying in there hanging in there and trying to champion that cause to make sure these changes do come about so, sorry, Abdullah, just reflecting on that, who thought electronic patient records could be so exciting? Yeah. I'm, I'm beaming away here. Going, you know, they could be a tool that unlock the future of high quality care for our patients, disrupting it. Imagine that data was accessible in the hands of patients, giving them control, not just of their data, but the interpretation of that data. That would be a really powerful. It's almost like, oh, it's almost like what Google did for information, the next right. generation of uh, electronic record systems could do for healthcare. Mm. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, let's be honest. How many times have we had to order another set of labs or order another radiological imaging because the patient went to another doctor but said, I don't really remember what it what it said or this. And it's actually too difficult to get those results in a fast enough time frame. So with disruptive technology, hopefully also comes cost savings and a decrease in overall healthcare costs. One thing I find fascinating, the NHS is such, you mentioned the largest global buyer, and yet for the NHS and the UK's budget, you guys spend less than 10% of GDP on the NHS compared to here in America, we spend over 17%. Can you guys walk us through uh, how you guys had that kind of cost savings compared to us here in the States? Um, so uh, I'm happy to take that. And the, um, well, it's quite, it depends what you're, people argue about the pros and the cons of the American versus the UK um, system a lot. Um, so, uh, first of all, one of the figures I am, there are a figure in the United States, I think is uh, pretty shocking to us in the United Kingdom, is the commonest cause of personal bankruptcy are healthcare bills in the US. And in the United Kingdom, I don't think last year there was anyone who went bankrupt from healthcare bills because it's provided by the National Health Service. So, 
universal health care coverage. And you're right, I think we're in around about 7% of GDP at the moment, roughly, um, with that. And it's more than double that in the United States, I think. I want to say 17 to 18%. But the, um, that's, that's exactly right. But it depends what your marker is, doesn't it? If your marker of how successful your healthcare system is overall is average life expectancy, then in the United Kingdom, for men, that's around 80 years, and for women, 82 years. In the United States, it's about 78 years on average. So we're spending less money, and our citizens are living longer. Um, we, there are some amazing things you can do in the United States in healthcare. Of course there are, but actually... Because we kind of have this system that covers you from the moment you're born until the moment you die, and that healthcare is free at the point of need and delivery for what um, uh, for what you want, then um, I, I think that allows us to um, deliver something in a really cost-effective way. But you know, people will always say, "Well." You have waiting lists and you have the following issues and problems. And sure, I'm, I'm not saying we've got all the right answers. But, you know, if you have an accident in the street, if you fall over, if you collapse anywhere in the United Kingdom, then you will receive the very highest standard of care that you can expect um, anywhere. Have we got it all right? No. Are we working really hard? And, and no country has this all right. Let's, you know, I've... I've seen, you know, brilliance in, in social care and, and, and primary care in Israel when I've traveled there. And, and they've, you know, they've really got some great things right. I've seen some truly amazing things in the United States in secondary care, too, and in other centers. But I haven't found one place across the world that has brought it all together and yet has all the answers. And yet we face new challenges of an aging population living with more long term conditions than ever before. Are potentially costing more and more and and we can't you i think it's been uh, i think I, I saw this slide it was again my friend john matson kaiser that showed it to me about 10 or 15 years ago when american healthcare spending was i think it was about 400 billion dollars a year and everyone said it can't carry on growing and and now i think you're at three point something trillion from my last and so there will come a point where you can't do that and people can't afford it. And I don't know what the solution is going to be, but um, I, I, and I don't think any one country can solve it on its own. No. So I think we can learn some great things from the US, um, uh, ourselves in the UK and vice versa. Sorry, Abdullah, go on. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, that's, that's the ultimate challenge is, you know, the, the, the GDP that gets allocated to the healthcare system per country, there has to be a ceiling. It can't infinitely keep going up. And year on year, we see this number going up because of the complex types of investigations we're doing, because of the costly kind of treatments we're doing, because of the population living older and having more uh, comorbidities. Uh, in the UK, a lot of our spend is going on social care, is increasingly going on social care, but there has to be a, a cost-benefit analysis. If you get the social care right, you might reduce actually the morbidity you have in cold winter months when people need the flu vaccine. So it's a very, very difficult health economy to balance. And I think what we're going through in the NHS slowly and maybe slightly painfully, depending on which um, department you are serving is trying to really justify the cost for those treatments. So there's lots of things in the NHS that used to cover absolutely everything, you know, 70 years ago. And now they're having to pull back on a few things. You know, there's a few 
trivial things such as skin lesions. Reed is a, a plastic surgeon and you'll know that we tell a lot of patients, look, just live with that cyst or live with that lipoma. You know, you have to really justify it's such a disruptive lesion to your body that you wanted it removed. So it's a very difficult balance to have because things we do in the NHS brilliantly is any form of emergency care, any heart attack, any kind of stroke, any kind of cancer you're seen within two weeks and hopefully got the ball rolling and dealt with in that sense. But it's those kind of elective cases. It's the kind of, well, can you really manage that yourself? Um, and I think that's the painful conversation we're having now and probably in the next five years. But it's a necessary conversation, as I say, because the GDP that you're allocating, it can't be infinite. And as the population is growing in size and living longer, we need to have some of these difficult conversations. So, gentlemen, I can tell you that Reed and I are energized by what we're hearing here. Um, I will also say to the audience, are we at the sea change moment of innovation and care within the NHS that might reverberate and influence care delivery and data management the world over. One will wait and see. We will certainly be following Abdullah and Tony on their journey uh, to service their, their country um, and their projects and their initiatives. For the voice of healthcare, we'll see you next time.